This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Chuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. As business owners, you and I have all hired people, and I want you to think back to how it usually plays out when you make a new hire. You draft a job advertisement, people apply, a few people are good enough to make it to the interview, and of the people who make it, one rises to the top. The whole time you're in control, you hold all the cards. But what if it was the other way around? With an increasing talent drought in Australia, hiring good people is becoming more difficult. Good candidates are holding more and more bargaining power. And instead of you asking someone why they deserve to work for you, they're asking you, why should I want to work for your company? And I want you to ask yourself honestly, how would you answer that question if someone asked it to you? Today's guest on the bottom line is Ben Bars, founder and CEO of We Are Unity, a consulting agency that specializes in sustainable business performance. Ben talks about the core principles of purpose-led workplaces and why they're pivotal in today's business landscape. You'll hear Ben explain how forging genuine connections with others and building unwavering commitment can help businesses succeed. And he'll also share how defining a collective goal that genuinely excites people can provide direction and meaning. And Ben poses the thought-provoking question, what would the world be missing out on if they didn't have you? Let's get started. Ben, thank you for joining me on The Bottom Line today. Absolute pleasure. Really looking forward to this conversation. For those that don't know you, can you tell us a little about yourself? Well, long story in a nutshell. Uh, Born in Germany, moved to the UK when I was nine, raised on a small island called Guernsey. It's a tax haven in between England and France. Did a combined cadet force schooling there and then went to the, uh, the mainland for university did economics, and then joined the financial world. Started off in London, doing portfolio management, moved to Russia, working in merchant banking, doing M&A, and then moved to Istanbul, working on the stock exchange, and then back to London. You know, through that process of determining investment viability of companies, there was one variable that kept messing with our predictions, and that variable was humans. So I decided to venture into better understanding human behavior and how it impacts the performance of a company and particularly the share price. Yeah, so we built this business about 11 years ago. We are Unity and it's sort of really emerging of three specialisms, one being vision and strategy development, the second being brand and relevance, and the third really being culture and performance. And so Unity, the name Unity comes from the idea of bringing those three things together and commercially really aligning how they work symbiotically. Can you talk us a little bit about sort of what you do at We Are Unity? Or you've touched on the services that you offer. Tell us a little bit about how you sort of maybe deliver those services, what kind of clients that you look after, and what does an engagement with your firm look like? So we've got four 
sort of core capabilities that we are Unity. So we've got a data science team, we've got a behavioral science team, we've got a creative team, and then we've got a change management team. The data science team really look to better understand what's impacting a company's performance, whether that's innovation, whether that's sales, whether it's market share, or whether it's internally looking at the way it's culture is impacting its performance. The behavioral science team will look at the, the human component, and that's quite often the bit that gets missed because everyone's so focused on digital and AI and systems and tech. And we know that the human component will determine whether or not a company is successful. So having the psychologists and the behavioral economists really diving into, into that component. The creatives are there to look at emotional connection. And so they'll really focus on creating and designing experiences that can shift the way a company innovates executes, delivers experiences for its customers, et cetera. And the change management team, well, they actually go on site and support our clients in driving the change. So once we've defined it through data, designed it with behavioral science and creativity, then we look to driving the change and helping our clients do that. And they, they will sit in a marketing function, an operations function, a transformation function, or a HR function, depending on the client's maturity and capability needs. Most of our clients are in the ASX community. So typically, most of our portfolio is ASX 200. We've got some private businesses that sit in there and some private family offices too that are international. Some sit in Hong Kong, some in Singapore. And, you know, a little bit of government. We've worked with you know, the likes of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, for instance, and in really looking to understand purpose and the focus of purpose. And then we have the startup scale-up community where we've got a lot of creative founders at the helm struggling to let go, but they know that they need to inject rigor, structure, discipline in order to scale sustainably. I guess at the core of all of those conversations is purpose and not having purpose, but being purpose-driven. So how do you apply your purpose to guide your investments, your decision-making, and ultimately sustain future relevance of the organization? So yeah, look, that's it in a kind of nutshell. I'm really intrigued around that there's words talked about purpose-led, value-driven. I've heard value-driven a lot. We did a lot of work with Cameron Schwab internally. He's been on our podcast before. And a business that doesn't have a purpose sometimes is this, you know, you're going on a boat and you don't know where you're going without a map. But I've never heard the term purpose-led. So I want to dive deeper into that purpose-led. What do you mean by purpose? So purpose really at its core is about being very clear why the organization exists. And the reason that's really important is because it's the foundation for all decision-making going forward. The purpose creates context, context for decision-making. And with purpose, you can build appreciation and support around the organization, its brand, its culture. I mean, we know that you consumers are six times more likely to buy from a purpose-driven brand and particularly defend a purpose-driven brand in times of need or crisis. Uh, we know that employees are five times more likely to stay loyal to a purpose-driven organization if they feel connected to that purpose. And what's been really interesting on the people side of things is that through COVID, I mean, you know, three years, we were all sitting at home staring into a camera. And I think with that space, people started to wonder what their life was all about, whether they had meaning in their life, whether they were fulfilled in what they did. And then we had this knock-on implication, you know, I think it was referred to as the great resignation. And people started to act on that and they wanted more. They wanted more meaning in their life and what they did and how they contributed. So it really propelled this focus for a lot of executives to think about how they were using their purpose 
to better connect with their people, but also to connect with their, their customers and their consumers. And in some instances, how they're using it to connect with their suppliers so they can better negotiate, how they can use it with the investor community so that investors are emotionally more likely to back and support new M&A activity or investment activity if it's connected to something meaningful. So purpose really does play such a core role in providing context and emotional reasoning for why we do what we do. I'm the managing partner here at Alexander Spencer and about two or three years ago, it dawned on me that we, as a partnership group, had lost why we were doing what we were doing. And we kind of reconnected that and we fixed all of that. But then after that, I came to the conclusion that we never really sold that to the team. They weren't aware of it. I remember saying in a partnership group meeting, partners, I said, we walked around and asked any employee, especially the ones that have been around for a while, if you said to them, do you know what the purpose or what the vision or what the goal of the company is? I reckon at that point in time, very few would have known it. And that becomes really weird, really difficult because people come to work for a reason. Some of it is personal, some of it for their own development, but they want to be in a company or be in an environment where they know that they're part of something, that they're adding, contributing to the goal, to the purpose of why they're there. And we worked a lot on that pre-COVID and post-COVID. We're doing even more work now. And you can just see the lift you get from the staff and from your team once you have that. And it's unbelievable. And people, you said earlier, you know, the behavioral science element gets missed. But it's the one that you can't also justify in a P&L or can't see it in a P&L when it's not working well. You can see costs go up and marginal erosion and all that, but people don't always go to people as a solution. So I can definitely vouch for purpose-led organisation or having even a purpose makes a huge difference. So can you tell us a story where you've gone into a, a company and you've really worked on purpose as an engagement. And just tell us sort of how did that become successful? And obviously, if you can't share names, that's fine. But just give us a story around a success of how a company's been able to go from A to B around either purpose or people or values. Before I do, you know, I think to your point around purpose and vision, purpose and vision actually go hand in hand. And I think it's really important to understand what the role of both of those actually plays. So on a human level and on a, on a sort of from an emotional perspective, but also from a rational perspective, right? So, so the intensive purpose is to create connection and commitment on an emotional level. On a rational level, purpose is there to provide context and context for decision-making, right? So there's an appreciation and an adoption for change that continuously comes from being a purpose-driven organization. Vision, the point of having a vision is that most companies in Australia are very short term in their behavior. And that's because the executives are KPI'd and incentivized with short term incentives that focus on 12, 24 month landscapes. And the purpose of a vision is to have a little bit more long term balanced thinking beyond the CEO's tenure to protect the organization and make sure that it's thinking in longer term horizons. So it's continually focusing on consciously self-disrupting itself 
in order to remain relevant and and that the investment is balanced between long term and emotionally the purpose of vision is to have a collective goal that excites people what are we collectively working towards because you hear a lot of ceos complaining about their companies being siloed and that everybody works in their own lanes and you can see that happening in the absence of a collective goal that excites and inspires and so a strong vision will actually unlock a lot of energy in the organization uh, where people go above and beyond their lane and what's typically required of them. So purpose and vision actually go hand in hand. So I thought that's just a, an important bit to mention up front. But look, you know, we've got a lot of organizations that we're, we're working with around purpose. Like I said, some in the ASX, some private, some startup and equally government departments. And everyone's doing it for a different reason. But I think at a macro level, there's an organization we've been working with and they're uh, the largest privately owned technology company in this country. The purpose, I guess, positioning or territory that we developed for them after undergoing a lot of research with their investors, their board, shareholders and their employees and their leadership team was keep it human. We exist to keep it human. And the reason that that positioning is really important because it now informs how they design their employee experience and how they design their customer experience model. It's also really important because they've got three parts of their business and three separate P&Ls. And when you've got three separate P&Ls, no matter what industry you're in, you're going to get duplication. You're not going to see the economies of scale that you actually would like to see. You hear a lot of CEOs about, you know, wanting to create one organization, one entity to maximize some of those economies and minimize duplication. And so purpose, the intent of having a purpose there was to unify the business and unify those P&Ls emotionally and keep it human now is being used for us to design the customer experience around, well, how do we live our purpose in moments that matter? So in the way we sell to a client or the way that we onboard a new client or the way we speak and engage to a client in our day-to-day, is our language human? Do we simplify the way we communicate? How do we measure the impact of that equally internally, the way we lead, the way we develop, the way we train? How does Keep It Human inform that? And so Keep It Human, the purpose then becomes a lens or a, a framework for us to apply the investments that go into designing, you know, brand and culture. And how did that impact that particular business? Does that engagement finish a while ago? And since that engagement, have you just seen the unlock of maybe the end results, growth and profitability, but what have you seen that engagement and that work do to an organization? Yeah, so, I mean, there are lots of metrics that then get attributed to the investments that hang off the back of that. It's it's one thing to do analytics that shows causation, but correlation at a minimum, whether it's engagement uplift, which they've seen, whether it's NPS uplift, which they've seen, whether it's customer renewal contracts, which is really, really important to track. And also, are the investors talking? Are they excited about why the organization exists and where it's going? So there's anecdotal evidence and then there's there's hard metrics that can sit on the back of that too. Um, equally, how does it inform, inform the innovation pipeline? And actually, we've seen a big uplift in new product development as a result of that connectivity across the PL. So there are different outcomes. And that's what I'm saying. Like every company looks at investing in purpose for a different reason and then working back to what are the outcomes that we'd hope to see on the back of that. But purpose doesn't work in isolation, right? It's one part of, and it's typically the core that then informs the rest. I find it intriguing that a top 200 listed company that pays a lot of money to a CEO goes 
external to bring that expertise around purpose, looking at the science and the data to figure out what's going on and then finding out what behavioral issues there are, the human element. Isn't that the CEO's job? Do you go into an organization and go, you know what, half the problem is because you blokes up the top have got it all wrong and do you need to come in there and go, I think you need to sack the, to the board, sack the executive team or, you know, that just makes it interesting around me as a small business advisor, why would a CEO need that advice? Or is, is the benefit of you being external really benefit the engagement outside looking in? Getting external provocation is healthy because if you limit the conversation to the capability that you have within the business, then that's you've automatically capped the conversation. I think the second part is we don't tell the clients what their purpose is or what their vision is because we're experts in in their industry. We help them unlock what they intuitively may feel or know and we create the environment and the stimulus for them to get to that outcome. So it's more about creating the conditions for the client to unlock what sits within them and to give the confidence around how to articulate it and then how to activate it, how to embed it, how to measure it. And sure, there's some specialisms that we bring to the table, just like an ad agency would when you're promoting a new product or like a a technology company would when you want to test how secure your systems are. You know, every now and then you need to tap into that expertise. Most of our relationships sort of sit between five to seven years because we know there's quite a runway to transforming. And some clients are transitioning and some clients are really transforming. And I think it's important to differentiate between the two. But, you know, I think external provocation is healthy. We even do it here. So um, when we looked at our brand, when we looked at our culture, we invited externals in because, you know, looking in the mirror, you know, you can look in the mirror or you can really look in the mirror. And you need to be ready to look in the mirror. And um, because you may not like what you see or you may not like all of what you see, but understanding why you see what you see and then what can you do about that? Having some professional support to manage that and, and navigate the stakeholder landscape and progressing on the back of that is important. I definitely value the external looking in. As again, we we do a lot of that work, but I genuinely believe you know, looking in the mirror is a lot different than someone else looking in the mirror. So just around for small business that are looking at, you know, either it's a startup, they're doing really well and they're listening to this podcast and hearing, well, hold on, I don't have a purpose or or don't know what my values are and my mission and vision goals. What tips would you give a small business owner that runs small business with maybe 20 employees to how do they get going? What if they may not be able to be, hire these expensive or these consultants that are external, what are some tips you could give to a small owner that can just get going in doing something small that'll help drive creating a purpose and some of the other stuff that you do in helping clients? Yeah, so I think the first step is if you're a small business owner, you need to be clear on what your personal objectives are before you get to the company's objectives. So if you own the business, You need to be clear on what you want out of your life and why you're in this business. Are you in this business because you want to do what you love doing and you're passionate about what you do and you want to make a good living along the way? Or do you want to build something valuable that you one day want to sell and cash in on and everything else that sits in between? If If you're clear on that, and a lot of business owners surprisingly aren't, that will then inform how you go about designing 
the scale of your organization. And I think, you know, through the process of defining why you exist and even why having a purpose will matter to, to your business, you need to have those conversations with your customers, with your suppliers, with your partners and with your employees. And I think it's just having that open dialogue, whether you, you know, if you, if you only have a handful of clients, interview them individually and have that conversation, you know, why do you think we exist and why does that matter to your organization? How do we impact your business? There's a big part of purpose, which is around jeopardy. And so the way you can test whether or not you have a meaningful purpose is to ask yourself the question, what would the world be missing out on if we didn't exist? Oh, that is great. I love that question. Yeah, because it's an important one because it forces you to really think about your true value in the context of your existence. So to answer your question, I would be very clear about my personal aspirations, use those to then inform what the vision for my business needs to be or what it needs to achieve for me as the owner, and then think about your stakeholder groups. And so it's not developed just with an internal lens. Think about your investors, think about your customers, and speak to them and your partners around why they believe your organization exists and what your sort of primary points of difference are in terms of value. That will then guide and and form. In terms of vision and that future focus, that aspirational component, I think a lot more of that needs to be customer-led. What is the potential of our business? What will get you excited about the future direction of our organization? And equally asking that of your people. It's really interesting. A lot of organizations don't ask their employees commercial questions. Most companies ask their employees engagement questions. Are you happy? Do you feel respected? Do you get the training you need? Right? And these are all important questions. But I think the big gap in the surveys and the, and the focus groups that employees run is they don't speak about what do you think is the potential of this business? Are you clear on the strategy of the organization and how to use the strategy in your day-to-day decision-making? Where do you think we've got unutilized innovation in our agenda? If the organization or the business owner was to engage in those types of conversations, which are typically limited to the executive or the leadership team, I think you'd unlock a huge amount of insight as to why you exist, where you're going, and how you could potentially get there. What a gold nugget of information there. If the listeners, all they did was ask those questions to their employees, I think we'd have much better businesses already out there. My next question is around that and around sort of more values. Recently, we changed our values in our organization. And we started doing that by reviewing what we had. And we've, we've, we're purpose-led business. We, we have a vision. We have a purpose. But we hadn't really talked about our values when we show up. How do we show up, what are, what are our personal values and how, what is, what's the organisational values. And we first did that as a partnership group called the board and then we went to our leadership team, our management team, and, and we asked them to tell us about what they felt the values of the company was, alignment around their personal and We just went through this journey of values and it was quite aligned. What we had created or we thought our values would like it to be, the new one moving forward, was very aligned to the management team and then we put something together and launched it. This is what we'll be living by, rah, rah, rah. In terms of how much do we engage in, obviously you do surveys and so on, but when you create sort of certain things like a values or whatever it is, how much influence do the people need to have? Does a team need to have? And if you've got an ASX company with 500 staff, how do you get across that? And then 
you hear something that's not aligned with the executive group, do you then go, oh, we've got to get rid of these 10 people because (laughs) they don't. So how does that work? How does getting the the surveys done? Is the values driven from the top? Is it getting a survey done? How does it all come about when you're putting together sort of the key values of an organisation? I think the interesting conversation here is why are you investing in values? So is this about brand and reputation and it's more of a a brand-led investment around what we want to be known for? Or is this a, a behavioral exercise where we fundamentally want to influence the mindsets and day-to-day decision-making of our people in moments that matter to make our organization more productive? And you know, again, depending on what outcome you're after uh, will then inform the way you go and approach that. So I'll probably go back to you with a question, which is why did your organization invest in values in the first place? I reckon it's the second one. So if it's the second one, so we're looking at productivity and performance. And behavior. I think it was around behavior was what I would say, but yeah, go on. Yeah. And, and look, you know, some people call them principles. Some people refer to them as values. Others a little bit more tangible and specific and refer to them as, as behaviors and mindsets. So depending on how poignant you want to be. But I think if you want to use values to change the way your organization behaves, you need to, first of all, understand how the behavior of the organization currently is impacting productivity. Most CEOs that I work with don't get told the truth or the whole truth by their direct reports because people share what they want to share and they're managing up, they're managing their careers, they're managing their reputations. And so no matter who you are, you're going to suffer from some degree of psychological safety. So if you genuinely want to understand everything so you can make the right decisions, you sometimes need that external person to hold the mirror up and then help you sort of work forward and and have the conversations you can't. Because a lot of companies have been chasing engagement, for instance, right? Because HR said, hey, this engagement score, it's really good because if people are engaged, it means they're happy. And if they're happy, they'll perform really well and we'll get to keep them. Unfortunately, that's not entirely true. And so what happens is when you chase in the engagement score, you're actually encouraging your employees to prioritize their relationship with each other over the interests of the business because you're creating an environment of superficial harmony. And while that might feel like a nice place to be and a respectful environment to be in, and that's really, really important, what you also find is when I protect my relationship, I might not challenge Savan the way I think I should, and I might not call him out in a meeting the way I probably should. And I might avoid the conversation that I probably should. And I'll definitely won't give him the feedback that he actually should probably hear. And because we're creating this environment nice, because we're chasing this metric, and guess what? Our executives are even KPI'd around that metric. It's in their bonus structures, right? So you can quite quickly see how chasing scores, something that's being told to us in the past is a good thing for business, can be quite detrimental. Same thing with NPS on the customer side. It's just a vanity metric. What you actually want to know is, are our customers referring and advocating? What's the actual advocacy and actual referral? And then you can compare that to propensity to advocate, which is your NPS score. And then you've got vanity and reality. And then you understand how much work you've got to do on that. So, you know, data-driven is good, but metrics in isolation can be dangerous too. So the first step would to actually be a culture diagnostic to understand how is our current culture, so the mindsets and behaviors of our people, 
impacting sales, customer conversion, customer relationships, margins, our innovation agenda. And typically what you see is that values stick in this sort of happiness box of conceptual words like trust and integrity and respect. And they're really important things, but they're typically the fundamentals, right? They're the basics. That's what you expect of your people. Where you want to get to if you're investing in values through the lens of productivity is you want to get to the specific behaviors that I can give you feedback on, right? So how could I give you feedback on whether or not you're trusted or whether or not you're displaying integrity versus whether you're being transparent and proactive in a meeting? So I think thinking about how is your current culture impacting your business at the moment, that is step one, okay? And the way you can do that is through surveys, but you've got to ask the right questions, And then you look at the data in your business that you can connect or correlate those insights with. You know, some companies right now are looking at their MS Teams data, for instance, and because we're all on on VC, you can see who in the organization is collaborating, who talks, who doesn't. We can track empowerment. We can see, is your boss, in what percentage of your meetings does your boss sit in with you? And therefore, how empowered are you? So we're in this era of transparency. There's a lot of passive data. Surveys can be biased. They're self-reported. They're point in time stamped and they're limited to the, to the questions. And a lot of organizations are unfortunately addicted to irrelevant external benchmarks that aren't really you know, in the context of their own business strategy. And the second part is then to be, once you understand how your culture is impacting your business, is to then get clear on what is the culture your business needs to become successful. So. We have our purpose, we're clear on why we exist. We have our vision, we're crystal clear on where we're going as an organization. We now have a strategy because we know how we're going to get there, right? Now, to underpin and and enable all of that, we now need to have a culture that is going to allow us to unlock all of that. And so therefore, when you start thinking about, okay, so the values you need to allow that culture change what do we want to keep? Because there are things about your culture you want to actually you want to maintain and protect because they're special and they're unique to your business. What do we need to remove? Things that are holding us back, damaging us. And then what are the things we need to introduce that we just don't have in our culture? Now you have a brief to inform the way you go about designing your values. And this is the really important bit. And I think, again, this is where there's, there's quite a lot of gaps in the way organizations go about values development is then what are you going to do with them? So CEO goes on a roadshow, HR promotes them, they go on the website, uh, they're in the onboarding pack, and uh, performance review time will assess you against those values. But actually, the going back to why you said your organization invested in values, it was productivity, then you've got to start thinking about how you make it easy for your employees to apply the values in moments that matter. So... The question I would ask you is, has your organization made it easy for you to use your values in a day-to-day meeting? Yeah, I'd say it's not a hard yes. It'd be a soft yes. But it's funny because when we launched this not long ago, I'm like, I thought exactly the same as, you know, they're all, okay, you're going to launch it. We're going to get rah, 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 have a meeting, I'm going to put it up. And like what then tends to happen is it just gets put in the, the top drawer and doesn't get talked about. So how are we going to eat and breathe it? In every meeting that we have, not necessarily one-on-ones, but where there's a group, we always talk about our values. We, we give examples of values that have been lived by by the organization and why they're important. And the, so 
hopefully over time, one, they'll know what the values are, but then the team can keep each other accountable to certain behaviors around our values. And one of our values, it's a weird one, it says no passengers, but underneath that it says know your role, accept your role, play your role. And it says sticking up for your teammates. And that's sort of one of our values. And that's something that we, we're really making sure you play your role and you've accepted it. And we do that a lot in our reviews. So, so that one we use a lot. And another one's fun, you know, having fun. We want to have fun. We, this organization stopped having fun for a long time. So we wanted to bring that back. So it's all good doing it, but you've got to get it. You've got to get it into it. Oh, you're laughing, <laughs> yeah. going, Ben. You're, no, look, yeah, these, are, these are, you know, and these are great territories, right? Yeah. But how do you make it easy for people? Because your idea of fun and mine are completely different. Correct. It would be. Well, they, well, they may be. Yeah, I don't well, know. Well, maybe, maybe they're not. not. Yeah. Maybe they're not. Maybe, no. maybe, we're, maybe we're both into Marvel uh, movies <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I think thinking about what is the behavior that underpins. So when we say fun, what is the behavior and the mindset and what isn't it, right? Cause fun can be both amazing in terms of celebrating success in the moment and building energy and recognition. And that's how we thrive, but equally it could be quite inappropriate too and damaging and risky for the brand and the organization. So I think it's just making sure that you're making it easy for people to understand what's right and what's maybe not. You know, no passengers could be weaponized because you haven't contributed in a meeting. And so I now challenge you to say, you know, hey, I thought we've got, we've got no passengers in this organization, as opposed to how do we use it to unlock diversity and make sure that perhaps the way a leader role models no passengers is the most senior person in the room speaks last to ensure that everyone's contributed so that we can live our value of no passengers, right? So it's you're starting to think about how to make it easy for people to role model and create the conditions where our values can actually add, unlock value. That's amazing. I reckon I need to have another session with you and um, we, we need to dive deeper into this. But unfortunately, we've run out of time. You have so much to share. We Are Unity is your business. For those that want to reach out, I'm assuming if we Googled We Are Unity, you'd pop up. How do, how do people reach out to you if they wanted to sort of get in touch? Yeah, sure. Just Google We Are Unity and take a look. There's plenty of case studies and some great work on there. And if you want to have a brainstorm over a cup of tea and get some guidance or some insights into how others are doing it in your industry, we'll share what we can. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. It's been amazing. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you again. A big thank you for joining me on The Bottom Line. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.